0: Well, after what feels like a very long season between uh, the series we did over the holidays and the brief series we've done the last three weeks, I'm excited to say to you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 as we get back into this glorious, glorious letter that the Lord has given to us through our brother, the Apostle Paul. We are moving right along in this epistle, and we are now in chapter 10, going to be looking at the first four verses. Hear the word of the Lord now, from Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, this pure, this perfect gift. Lord, this treasure that you have have entrusted to us, that that through your spirits working through your word that we hear the voice of our God, that we are transformed, brought even from death to life. We pray this morning that through your word you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name amen. Well, two two weeks ago, Andrea and I took a whirlwind trip to Kansas to see America's team, <laughs> God's team, the Kansas Jayhawks play basketball. Uh, but imagine with me, if you will, that on the way home, I took a wrong turn. I know. We're imagining. It's absurd. It would never happen. <laughs> Andrea's laughing because it happens. I'm pretty good at like, I don't think I even need the GPS anymore. And then I shut it off, and then we're lost, and we turn it back on. But, but imagine I did this. Andrea took a little nap, and she woke up to discover that I had been driving the wrong direction for a good while. And I said to her when she was concerned, look, I admit it, we're lost. Don't worry, I've got it all figured out. I've got the plan. And instead of turning the GPS back on, I just turned the stereo on and put on like something inspirational like Eye of the Tiger and just cranked it and said, here's the plan, here's how I'm going to fix this. I'm going to drive faster. That's the solution. We're still lost, but I'm going to drive with determination. I'm going to drive with passion. I'm going to drive with confidence, and I believe that will cause us to end up in the right place. And those of you that know Andrea know that quickly she would turn the GPS on and my response was not going to work with her. The, the truth is, speed is not the solution. No matter how passionate we are, No matter how much confidence we have, going full speed in the wrong direction does not solve the problem of being lost or heading in the wrong direction. If you're going in the wrong direction, no amount of confidence, no amount of sincerity, no amount of determination is going to help you. In fact, passionately driving in the wrong direction is going to get you further away from home than you were before. No one who is lost ever ends up in the right direction because they drove with confidence or passion or sincerity or determination. And the reason is not all roads lead to Topeka. So you can't just pick one and start driving in some direction and get there. It doesn't matter how confident you are doesn't matter how sincere, it doesn't matter how talented of a driver you are, it doesn't matter if the roads are smooth and everything feels perfect, not all roads lead to home, and neither do all roads lead to God, not if we are going to be in right standing with him when we get there. Many millions, well-intentioned though they may be, are living their lives believing that all that matters is their confidence, All that matters is their sincerity. All that matters is their passion and their determination. And that no matter what road they're on, as long as they are completely sincere in their hearts, it will lead them to an eternal home with God and right standing with him. And yet they are headed in exactly the wrong direction. And this is the problem that Paul's addressing here in Romans chapter 10. He's been dealing with the problem of Jewish unbelief. Just to refresh our memories, what what Paul's been saying in Romans chapter 9 is, is how can it be all of these glorious promises that Paul unfolds in the gospel, in the first eight chapters of this book, how can it be then that the Jews, God's chosen people, the ones to whom these promises were delivered, how could could it be that they have largely rejected their Messiah, Jesus how could God's promises possibly be true? And and Paul in chapter nine points us to two things. Most of chapter nine is pointing to his first answer. The first answer is, How can this be? How can it be that God's promises haven't failed? That God is not a liar. If the Jews have rejected their Messiah, and Paul's first thing he points to in chapter 9 is this, it's the sovereignty of God. That's our answer. The first thing we look to is we lift our eyes off of our very limited perspective and our human reason, and we look to God who is sovereign. God's promises have not failed because God's promises were made to a very specific group of people, and it is not an ethnic people. It is not ethnic Israel that these promises were ultimately made to. God's promises were made, Paul says, to those whom he had sovereignly elected before the foundation of the universe. And so his promises to them have not failed, not to a single one of them. And now establishing that, having lifted our eyes to look at the sovereignty of God, having established that God's sovereign grace is actually not something we have coming to us. It's not something that we have earned. It is a free gift that he can choose to give to whoever he wants to give it to. He is not obligated to give it to anyone. Having established that salvation is not a matter of fairness, it is a matter of mercy. Now at the end of chapter 9, Paul turns our attention to human responsibility. First thing Paul says is let's get things straight. Let's remember who we're talking about. This is God who does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants. This is God who's dependent on no one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But then Paul says, now we turn our eyes to human responsibility. That is a factor in this too. And for Paul, these two things are not contradictory. They work side by side. They are compatible with one another. They are not in opposition. God's sovereignty on the one hand, man's responsibility on the other hand. So Paul's second answer to this, why are the Jews unsaved or really... Why is it that anyone who isn't saved isn't saved? And Paul's second answer is unbelief. Unbelief is the reason. The very center of Christianity is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not morality. It's not good works. It's not opposing evil. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus has said this to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you will have eternal life. It's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And Paul points to this very truth and says, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Unless the Spirit of God opens the eyes of someone who is dead in sin, they will never see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They cannot. That's Paul's first answer, the sovereignty of God, they are unable. And his second answer, man's responsibility, they are unwilling both of these things working together. They will never believe or respond to the gospel's call unless God opens their eyes and acts upon them. And so, the, the, and the, and, and the greatest sin in the world is not murder. The greatest sin in the world is not theft. The greatest sin in the world is not adultery. The greatest sin in the world is unbelief. It is rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no, no sin with more serious and grave consequences than this one. John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This is the most grave and serious sin in the world, and it is the one that all people are guilty of, requiring God to to move upon us by his Spirit. And so Paul Paul ends chapter 9 identifying this Jewish unbelief. He he says, here's what's going on in their unbelief. They pursued a way of justification. Again, justification, it's been a while since we've been in Romans. It means right standing with God. And he says, they pursued this right standing with God, this justification, this this way of righteousness, this way of salvation and life. Yes, they pursued that, but they pursued it the wrong way. They were driving the wrong direction trying to get to that destination. They sought it not by faith in Jesus, but through their own works. And because they were lost themselves, they hated the gospel of grace. That's what we see in the Jews, in the Jewish rejection of Christ. Just consider Paul's own, own interaction with the Jews after his conversion. Was it not very similar to Christ's interaction with them? The unbelieving Jews reviled and persecuted Paul. They opposed his preaching, they planned to kill him, they tried to kill him. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always, to fill up the full measure of their sins. That's Paul's Paul's take on his Jewish brethren of the day. They displease God, they oppose the gospel of Christ, and they have filled up for themselves the full measure of their sin, and yet Paul loved them. Paul loved them. His heart was broken for them. These words in 1 Thessalonians 2 are not written with Paul red-faced and angry. Having to hold himself back from saying something he shouldn't say. Oh, they're the words of a broken-hearted man. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul expresses this. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother's my kinsmen according to the flesh. What a staggering thing that is. Consider what Paul endured at the hands of these very people he's saying this about. It's hard for us to feel this way about people who we just find annoying. It's hard for us to look out into the world and see, see the enemies of the gospel and their arrogance and their boasting and their pride, and we don't even come close to this level of compassion and love that Paul has here for the very people who actively tried to shut him down, and actively tried to murder him. It's astounding. It's astounding, this heart that he has. And he's not just wishing good things for them. He's not just wishing for their salvation. He's, he's praying. Look at verse 1 now in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is what Paul wants. So when Paul begins to speak of the sin of Israel and their unbelief, and their rejection of Christ, and the grave consequences... When he paints this picture of of the unbeliever in in moral filth in this pit, locked in a prison, reveling in their sin, not even wanting to be freed from it, absolutely deserving every ounce of wrath for the eternal sin against an eternal God, he is not doing so with a grin on his face. He is not doing so with a smug self-righteousness. He is doing so with tears and a broken heart. He says, my earnest desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's ministry was one of proclamation, one of proclaiming the gospel, one of, of speaking. He preached to the Jews. He even said that he made a big deal out of his ministry to the Gentiles. He, he'll tell us later in Romans chapter 11, verse 14, in order, to show my fellow, in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's looking at this group of people who've rejected God. They have every privilege from God given to them, every opportunity, every glory that sets them above and beyond anyone else who had ever lived on the planet. Yet they had shaken their fist in his face. They killed the prophets. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. They killed his servants in the New Testament. And Paul looks at them and he says, everything I'm doing is for them. Even if I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, it's just because I want to make them jealous so that they'll repent of their sin and turn to the Lord. In the midst of all of this activity, this proclamation that Paul is doing, he's been praying. He's been praying. Paul knows the power of prayer. The prayer is actually accomplishing something. And it's easy for us to feel like that's not the case. Especially we begin to think of God's eternal purposes and and all of of creation, and all of eternity, and we go, well, God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, so why do my prayers matter? The truth is, what Paul understands is that prayer matters very, very much. Prayer is the means to God's ordained ends. In other words, God ordains the ends, what is going to happen, and he also identifies the avenue by which he's going to accomplish that. And, And prayer is... A huge part of that prayer is wrapped up into that. God ordains, for instance, the salvation of elect sinners, and so he also ordains that someone's going to preach to them. He also ordains that someone is going to be praying for them. God ordains the way they're going to get saved as much as he ordains the fact that they're going to get saved. Paul understands that. and So since he desires the salvation of his brothers, his, his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, he continually proclaimed the gospel to them on the one hand and continually prayed for them on the other hand. George Mueller is said to have spent over 60 years praying for two of his friends to be saved. They both eventually were. One of them was converted a year before Mueller's death. So after 60 years of praying, the other was converted a year after Mueller's death. But the testimony of his life is that he never stopped praying for them for the entirety of his life, that they would be saved. I think we look at Paul's words, we look at the example of someone like Mueller, and we have to ask ourselves, who is it that I have an intense desire to see come to salvation? Who is it that I have this kind of heart for? A child? One of your children, your, your spouse, your parents, a sibling, a friend. Well, friends, these people are driving 100 miles an hour towards a cliff. To, to, in fact, towards hell itself. Do, do you continually pray for their salvation or do you grow tired in that? It's a human thing. It's a natural thing to grow tired, to grow weary in prayer. That's not what we're called to. We're called to something supernatural, something more than that. Are are you intentional about sharing the gospel with them? Or did you do it one time and they rejected it and that's enough? Are you looking for opportunities to to interject this glorious and beautiful and saving gospel that Paul says is the power of God for salvation? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing. By hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good for us to, to ask ourselves this because our, our, our determination sort of leaks out of us. We get weary. We get tired. We get hurt. Paul says, I, this is my earnest desire, my prayer for them. Well, what, what's the nature then of the Jews' unbelief? Look at verse two. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's a striking statement here. They have zeal for God. That's pretty good. I wish that we all had a wholehearted zeal for God, but that's not the end of the sentence. I bear witness, they have zeal for God. End of state, statement. No, that's not what Paul does. There's a a word that follows that. That next word, but. And we know how that word functions basically undermines the first half of the sentence. They have zeal for God, but I'm about to tell you why this is a big problem. Even their zeal for God is problematic. It's like when someone says to you, I'm not a racist, but... If you can interject in that moment, say, whatever racist thing you're about to say here, I'm not sure I want to hear it. (laughs) Because that statement is always followed by a racist statement, 100% of the time. That's what this word does. So Paul says they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Literally the word is precise knowledge. They they have zeal for God but they are wrong about the gospel and that ruins everything. There are many people, many religions that are zealous for God. But without the gospel it's disastrous. It's deadly. But Paul often spoke of the days when he was exactly like this. This is how he knows what's going on in their hearts and in their minds because this was him in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. He tells the Jews in Jerusalem this, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison Both men and women and the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, I was in fact zealous for God. That that motivated what he did, what Saul did. I was zealous for God. But he was sincerely wrong. He did not know the gospel. And so his zealousness for God actually made him zealous for persecution, zealous to persecute the church. It made him zealous in opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. It made him zealous in murdering Christians. It made him zealous to destroy Christ's church. Zeal without knowledge of the gospel is deadly, it's destructive. It's not enough to just be passionate. It's not enough to just be sincere. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. How true that is. We must, friends, be zealous for gospel truth. It's not a good thing to have passion without knowledge. It's a deadly thing. Just look at, look at so called liberal Christianity. And what's going on there? It has no Christ, it has no salvation. Any so called Christianity that is devoid of the preaching of the gospel is also devoid of salvation. It is, in fact, something other than Christianity. Liberal Christianity is not a different kind of Christianity. It is a different religion entirely, based on a different set of of terms for salvation entirely. And yet, liberal Christians are some of the most zealous people you'll ever meet in your entire life. They are eager to do the work of God in denouncing the evil, backwards, narrow-minded, conservative Christians these Bible-thumping weirdos, they're, they're eager to defend God's honor from people like, well, us. They're zealous. Cults are empty of the truth of the gospel, but they are zealous for their cause, are they not? They'll travel around the world to, to win converts so they can take them to hell with them. They have zeal, without knowledge, we see this all around us. The the, the fanaticism, the cultish thinking that we see around us with zealousness without knowledge, whether it's Marxism or critical theory or extreme environmentalism or sexual insanity or abortion or even the prosperity gospel. In all kinds of different ways, we see zeal without knowledge of the gospel is a deadly and destructive force, but there is such passion, there is such sincerity, but it's all zeal without knowledge, to use Paul's language, it's irrational. Zeal without knowledge is irrational, it's destructive, and it can never, ever, ever save. It can never save. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe, if you have the wrong God, you will not be saved. So it's dangerous because it sends people to hell. Truth matters. Since Sincerity is not enough. You must be right. He goes on in verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What, is, what, are, what are they lacking here in their understanding? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean they didn't know about it. It doesn't mean that they hadn't heard about the righteousness of God. They did know about it because Paul himself had preached the gospel to them. So when he says they were ignorant of these things, it doesn't mean they didn't had never heard them. What it means is they refused to embrace the gospel of salvation through Christ. That's what he means. they they're ignorant of it. They refuse it. They refuse to accept the Lord Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God and so they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They don't know what it, what it, what it means to be righteous. No matter what religious rituals they're going through. They're blind by sin. They couldn't even receive spiritual things. They willfully rejected their Messiah. They knew who Jesus was. Everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody knew what he had preached and everyone knew what he had done. They knew he had died and they knew that he has risen from the grave just as he said he would, but they would not trust in him. They refused to trust in him. And instead of of entrusting themselves to him and, and, and receiving from him true righteousness from God, instead they trusted in their own righteousness, based on their own goodness, based on their own good works, which, of course, anytime we do that means we must have a very low view of sin. Any thought that we could save ourselves by doing good things proves that we don't understand what sin is and the gravity of it. Any thought that God owes salvation to anyone means we do not understand sin and we do not understand the holiness of God. The truth is, this isn't limited just to those first century Jews. Most people hate the gospel of grace. That may sound crazy to us. Who would hate grace? I want someone to think happy thoughts of me and be nice to me. Oh, it's because we're talking about the gospel of grace. And most people hate it. Most people hate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate grace because of their pride. That's why they hate it. Why do people hate the gospel? Why do people hate true grace as as Scripture presents it? It's because of their pride. And we see this exhibit itself in all kinds of, of different ways, what we don't like about the gospel. People reject the doctrine of total depravity. They say, no, 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 people are basically good with good hearts. They're not basically bad, like the Bible says. No, 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 they're good with good hearts, deserving of Good things. Give them the right opportunity and they will prove it to you just how good they are. They're they're deserving of good things from God because they have good hearts. We reject what the gospel tells us about ourselves because of our pride. Who who wants to be told that you're a sinner? That you're undeserving? that, That you are morally filthy? Oh, nobody wants to hear that. I tell my kids they can be anything they want to be and they have little hearts of gold. And we hate the gospel of grace. They reject the doctrine of sovereign election, saying instead, it's only right if man gets to choose. The things Paul said in Romans chapter 9, no. That's unfair. That is unright. Unright's not a word. I made it up just now. It's only fair if man gets to choose because Man, not God, is the one who's trustworthy in salvation. Friend, that's the thinking that drives that. I can't trust God to make that choice. Man's got to be able to make that choice. He's the one trustworthy. We reject these things because people desperately want to be their own saviors. They want to be their own savior because of their own free will, and nothing else is acceptable and so Paul says they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. That's exactly what unbelief does. It rejects the righteousness of God on the terms that God offers it, and it instead runs within ourselves to be our own Savior. They, they refuse to acknowledge their sin. They refuse to accept that they are in need of salvation. They refuse to accept a God who has wrath for unbelievers... And who will condemn them in their sin. And so they are left with nothing but themselves. It's all me. It's all on me. It's what I do. It's what I don't do. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 warns us to pay very careful attention to the gospel. Lest we drift away from it. Because it's a real threat. It's an easy thing to do. To let the worldly thinking infiltrate our minds so that we don't have gospel thinking anymore. But it really is this simple. Either God in the Lord Jesus Christ saves us by his own righteousness, or we will try to save ourselves by our own righteousness. And the difference between these two things is the difference between heaven and hell. It's that vast a gulf. They're irreconcilable. The vast majority of people choose the latter. Saving themselves by their own righteousness however they define righteousness. Self-salvation by a self-righteousness, which is actually a blasphemous rejection of the God of the Bible. And it leads only to damnation. Here's why, because of verse 4. Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is why it's so disastrous. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This, this verse has been called the charter of Christianity. This truth. Christ is the end of the law. It doesn't mean the termination of the law. It doesn't mean Christ makes it so there's no law anymore. Many aspects of God's law in the Old Testament are brought right into the New Testament. We can't say that the law is, is gone and done away with. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He is the goal of the law. He's the fulfillment, the true fulfillment of the law. He brings the law to its intended meaning. And so the, the, the law was never given to us, not in the Old Testament, not at any point in Israel's history. The, the law was never given to us so that we could save ourselves by it. So that we could obey this law to the the letter and somehow be saved by doing so. The law was given so that we would humble ourselves and confess our need for saving, so that we would turn to Christ. Paul says then, His righteousness is for who? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to who? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Let me just draw your attention to two words there quickly. Number one is everyone. So we may have gone through Romans 9, and maybe you heard some things you've never heard before. I know that occasionally I hear from people like, I don't think I've ever heard Romans 9 preached verse by verse because it says some really challenging things. And maybe you are really thrown by that. What does it all mean? Let me just draw your attention to this word everyone. The righteousness... Uh, four, righteousness to everyone who believes. You want to know if you're elect or not? Believe. Trust Christ. Run to Christ. Your loved one, you're concerned because they're not walking with the Lord. Are they elect or are they not elect? What does all this mean? Call them to come to Christ. Everyone who believes. And that other word is Believes. This is is how we receive this righteousness. The only way to be justified is by faith. That's all. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answer to the question, what is justification, says justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is our only hope. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but put on us, credited to us, on the basis of faith alone. There's no hope outside of that. Our only hope is a righteousness that comes not from inside of us, but from outside of us. Martin Luther called it a, a, an alien righteousness. It comes from the outside in. By faith, friends, we, we have been united to Christ. And that changes everything. That's how we receive this righteousness, be united to Christ. Back in chapter 7 of Romans, in verse 4, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. This union with Christ is everything when it comes to receiving justification, receiving the the righteousness of God. Paul says there in chapter 7, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. The literal language there is you've been put to death. You were united to Christ in his death. It's not that the law has died, it's that we have died. Our, our old self was, was under the just condemnation of the law, under the, the, the heavy crushing curse of the law because of our sin But that old us has been put to death on the cross of Christ. We've been united to Christ in his death, but we've also been united to Christ in his resurrection. So the curse of the law has been taken in its fullness by Christ. It's not there for us anymore. So, So our entire relationship to the law has been transformed. The law has never been able to save you, but if you are in Christ, it can no longer condemn you. That's glorious news. This righteous, good, true, just law of God under whose condemnation we once stood no longer speaks a word of condemnation upon you because Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. It's this righteousness of God for for all who believe, for everyone who believes. All that the law can demand is death and Jesus died. It's got no demands left to make on you, Christian. But the Jews of Paul's day were determined to to be their own saviors. They rejected that notion of a vicarious substitute in their place. They were filled with zeal. They were filled with passion, but they were totally lost. And the unbelievers of our day are no different whatsoever. They may use different language. Their self religion may have different forms but it is the identical problem. They are driving in the wrong direction and it's not just that they are lost it's that they're they're driving 100 miles an hour towards a cliff that will actually plunge them into hell. That's that's an enormous problem. It's an enormous deal. What's the answer? What will save them? What will save the unbeliever from plunging over that cliff and being swallowed up by hell? Well, the answer is not drive with more speed and confidence. It's not a matter of needing more passion. It's not a matter of needing more determination or working harder. Well, the solution is much more simple than that. John Calvin says the first step to obtaining the righteousness of God is to renounce our own righteousness. Admit that you don't have any of your own. You've got no righteousness of your own. Every single good thing that any person has ever done is thoroughly tainted by sin. That which is not of faith is sin. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him alone. Be clothed in Him with the righteousness of God. Renounce any notion of self-righteousness or being able to save yourself and trust in Christ and obey Christ. The justification, the, the fact that God in Christ cancels out all of our sin and treats us as, as spotlessly righteous just as Christ is does not give us the freedom then To do whatever we want to do. Just because Christ, in exchange for for all of my sin, past, present, and future, gave me his righteousness on the cross, does not mean that my future sins or present sins don't matter. Justification does not free us to sin. Christian, you are not free to sin. In fact, the proof of our justification is our sanctification. The proof of saving faith is not lawlessness. Look, I know I'm saved for sure because I do whatever I want to do. Nobody can tell me anything. No, no, no. No, the proof of saving faith is obedience. Jesus Christ is king. If you will not obey him, if you will not bow your knee before him, if you will not submit yourself before him, then you are showing that you are not a Christian. If you will not obey, you are showing that you have not been united to Christ, that you have not been justified. Now, am I saying that if someone sins, they lose their salvation? No, I'm saying just the opposite. I'm saying exactly the opposite. The one who has been saved has also by this same Christ been transformed, been given a new heart and a new mind with new desires to such an extent that the Christian will not persist in unrepentant sin. It's not that we won't sin, we will. The Christian has been so radically transformed that we will not persist in unrepentant sin. The Christian cannot live with themselves in that state. Romans chapter 1, verse 5, through... Through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Paul says in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel demands obedience. The gospel is a message of God's free grace. A salvation we could not earn, a salvation we must not work for, but a salvation that produces sure fruit. The gospel demands obedience. In, in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, Paul says, I declared first to those in Damascus and then Jerusalem and then through the whole region of Judea, also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, they ought to prove their justification by their obedience. This is what a Christian is. Repent, turn to God, and then bear fruit. Prove it with your life. Not earn it with your life. Prove it with your life. Show it. We're saved by God's grace alone, but this is what grace does. Grace brings some stuff with it. And it's a life transformed. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what grace does. Grace produces the right kind of zeal. Paul talks about the Jews who were zealous for God but horribly misguided. The grace of God produces the right kind of zeal, it makes us excited and energetic about the right things. Grace produces obedience. Grace produces a desire to renounce worldly passions. Grace produces a passion for the glory of God, a a passion to proclaim the gospel. Grace produces a, a, a zealousness for good works. May we, church, by the grace of God, be passionate about the right things. May this be strong evidence of the grace of God in our lives individually and among us as a church be zealous for God and zealous for the right things. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that, Lord, your word always identifies us where we are. And Lord, even as we hear Paul speaking of the the unbelieving Jew, we consider the unbelievers of our day, we pray that by your spirit you would convict us where, where, Lord, we have been living in ignorance of the truths that you've revealed to us by your Spirit through your Word. Where, where we have functionally lived faithlessly, as we see in these unbelievers that Paul speaks about, and cause us, Lord, to, to repent, to turn from that, where we've trusted in our own self-righteousness, where we've rejected your gospel of grace, where we have grown weary in doing well, where we have lost our zeal for good works. Lord, would you, by your Spirit in your mercy and kindness to us, convict us of that, bring us to repentance and faith, and Lord, infuse into us a zealousness to do good works and a determination to live for your glory and your kingdom's sake in this world, to spend ourselves for you, not as a way to try to earn salvation that you've given us freely in Christ, but out of love and worship and a life transformed. We pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.